I sense a disturbance in the Force. You always sense a disturbance in the Force. I don't like this. Really pissed me off. Together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Good morning. Nice of you guys to drop by. Hello and welcome back to Star Wars Monthly Monday. I'm Chris Honeywell and... Oh wait! <laughs> There's no Scott Gardner here. Uh, I got a little explanation for you here. Uh... Scott Gardner is undergoing his training to drive the monorail, so he's a busy little beaver. So this month, I've been left to my own devices to uh, run Star Wars Monthly Monday, and of course, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, go over the comics or any of that stuff because you know Scott wants to be here for that. So I've had a little, little project in the back of my head that I've wanted to do, a little Star Wars project, and I figured. Well, this might be the perfect opportunity to, well, not to completely do it, but to, to begin to do it. Um, what I've wanted to do for a long time is sort of do a, a reading of the novelization of Star Wars by George Lucas. But, you know, really, it's everybody knows it was written by, uh, ghostwritten by uh, Alan Dean Foster. Um, and I thought about how I would want to do this, and I think that I want to do it in the form of the theater of the mind. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read the book, but, uh, you know, I'll, 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 I'll sort of act out the voices. I, uh, you know, I'm not a mimic, obviously. I can't do impressions, but what I'll hope to do is sort of capture the essence of of the character and you know and god knows i've seen star wars a million times you know we can all hear it in our heads so that shouldn't be too hard um one of the things one of the sort of hurdles that i've always had on this is i've never had really i've never i don't have the the star wars sound effects you know the i don't have access to uh, ben burt's massive library of of you know, wonderful Star Wars sounds, and you know they're all there in the movies, but they're all you know linked in with with dialogue and and music and other background noises, and you know it's it's the book. It's not going to go along like a, a the screenplay or something like that. It's it's not like that. It's not like I'm acting out the movie. It'll be it'll be the book. So, and um, and the same thing goes with music. You know, there's. The music was made to go along with the movie and the flow of the movie and stuff, and also 
you know the 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 book sort of flushes things out so you can't really play the music along with the with the book and have it fit so i'm going to find other selected musical pieces that i think fit in to uh enhance this and i'm going to draw upon the massive two true freaks sound effects library to sort of you know simulate the sound effects of star wars and and see how how i can do with that um so yeah it should it should be pretty interesting i don't know how far i'm gonna get i'm i'm probably just gonna start reading until you know i've had enough and maybe you know try to wrap it up so i end you know at the end of a chapter or something um i'd really be surprised if uh I got to, well, I'm opening up to page 108 and we're still in Mos Eisley. So we're not going to get, we're not getting off tattooing tonight. But, uh, you know, if this goes over well and, uh, and turns out good, you know, uh, we'll work our way through it. And, uh, you'll have a, a two, two freaks presentation of Star Wars, the novelization in the theater of your mind. So put on your headphones and sit back in your beanbag chair and relax however you relax and uh without any further ado <clears throat> we'll be reading from star wars by george lucas from the adventures of luke skywalker i'll be reading from the paperback ah, let's see which printing this is this is not my original copy of, of Star Wars Paperback. That one is taped together with scotch tape and literally the front and back covers have been handled so much that they're almost blank. There's just a ghost of an image on this one. Uh, this image, somebody, or on this, this particular um, edition of Star Wars Paperback that I have is one of many. And this is the one I remember this one because... It's the one that's sort of in the best held together condition, but whoever owned it before had traced all the, like the Death Star and the TIE Fighters on the cover, so they're sort of impressed into the cover, so I always like stuff like that. So, okay. So, Star Wars from the Adventures of Luke Skywalker, a novel by George Lucas, Delray Books. <clears throat> Prologue. Another Galaxy another time the old republic was a republic of legend greater than distance or time no need to know where it was or whence it came only to know that it was the republic once under the wise rule of the senate and the protection of the jedi knights the republic throve and grew but as often happens when wealth and power pass beyond the admirable and attain the awesome then appear those evil ones who have greed to match. So it was with the Republic at its height. Like the greatest of trees able to withstand any external attack, the Republic rotted from within, though the danger was not visible from outside. Aided and abetted by restless, power-hungry individuals within the government and the massive organs of commerce, the ambitious Senator Palpatine caused himself to be elected President of the Republic. He promised to reunite the disaffected among the people and to restore the remembered glory of the Republic. Once secure in office, he declared himself Emperor, shutting himself away from the populace. 
Soon he was controlled by the very assistants and bootlickers he had appointed to high office, and the cries of the people for justice did not reach his ears. Having exterminated through treachery and deception the Jedi Knights, guardians of justice in the galaxy, the Imperial governors and bureaucrats prepared to institute a reign of terror among the disenharnated worlds of the galaxy. Many used the Imperial forces in the name of the increasingly isolated Emperor to further their own personal ambitions. But a small number of systems rebelled at these new outrages. Declaring themselves opposed to the new order, they began the great battle to restore the Old Republic. From the beginning, they were vastly outnumbered by the systems held in thrall by the Emperor. In those first dark days, it seemed certain that the bright flame of resistance would be extinguished before it could cast the light of new truth across a galaxy oppressed and beaten peoples. From the first saga, Journey of the Wills. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Naturally, they became heroes. Leia Organa of Alderaan, Senator. Chapter 1 It was a vast, shining globe, and it cast a light of lambent topaz into space, but it was not a sun. Thus, the planet had fooled men for a long time. Not until entering close orbit around it did its discoverers realize that this was the world in a binary system, and not a third sun itself. At first it seemed certain nothing could exist on such a planet, least of all humans. Yet both massive G1 and G2 stars orbited a common center with a peculiar regularity, and tattooing circled them far enough out to permit the development of a rather stable, if exquisitely hot, climate. Mostly this was a dry desert of a world, whose unusual star-like yellow glow was a result of double sunlight striking sodium-rich sands and flats. That same sunlight suddenly shone on the thin skin of a metallic shape falling crazily towards the atmosphere. The erratic course the galactic cruiser was traveling was intentional, not the product of injury, but of a desperate desire to avoid it. Long streaks of intense energy slid close past its hull, a multi-hued storm of destruction like a school of rainbow remoras fighting to attach themselves to a larger, unwilling host. One of those probing, questing beams succeeded in touching the fleeing ship, striking its principal solar fin. Gem-like fragments of metal and plastic erupted into space as the end of the fin disintegrated. The vessel seemed to shudder. The source of those multiple energy beams suddenly hove into view, a lumbering imperial cruiser, its massive outline bristling cactus-like, with dozens of heavy weapons emplacements. Light ceased arching from those spines now as the cruiser moved in close. Intermittent explosions and flashes of light could be seen in those portions of the smaller ship which had taken hits. In the absolute cold of space, the cruiser snuggled up alongside its wounded prey. Another distant explosion shook the ship, but it certainly didn't feel distant to R2-D2 or C-3PO. The concussion bounced them around the narrow corridor like bearings in an old motor. To look at these two, one would have supposed the tall human-like machine, 3PO, was a master and the stubby tripodal robot, R2-D2, an inferior. But while 3PO might have sniffed disdainfully at the suggestion, they were in fact equal in everything but loquacity. Here 3PO is clearly and necessarily the superior. Still another explosion rattled the corridor, throwing 3PO off balance. 
His shorter companion had the better of it, doing such movements with his squat cylindrical body's low center of gravity well balanced on thick clawed legs. Artu glanced up at 3PO, who was steadying himself against a corridor wall. Lights blinked enigmatically around a single mechanical eye as a smaller robot studied the battered casing of his friend. A patina of metal and fibrous dust coated the usually gleaming bronze finish, and there were some visible dents, all the result of the pounding the rebel ship they were on had been taking. Accompanying the last attack was a persistent deep hum, which even the loudest explosion had not been able to drown out. Then for no apparent reason, the basso thrumming abruptly ceased, and the only sounds in the otherwise deserted corridor came from the eerie dry twig crackle of shorting relays, or the pops of dying circuitry. Explosions began to echo through the ship once more, but they were far away from the corridor. 3PO turned his smooth, human-like head to one side. Metallic ears listened intently. The imitation of a human pose was hardly necessary. 3PO's auditory sensors were fully omnidirectional, but the slim robot had been programmed to blend perfectly among human company. This programming extended even to mimicry of human gestures. Did you hear that? He inquired rhetorically of his patient companion, referring to the throbbing sound. They've shut down the main reactor and the drive! His voice was as full of disbelief and concern as that of any human. One metallic palm rubbed dolefully at a patch of dull gray on his side, where a broken hull brace had fallen and scoured the bronze finish. 3PO was a fastidious machine, and such things troubled him. Madness! This is madness! He shook his head slowly. This time we'll be destroyed for sure! Arthur did not comment immediately. Barrel torso tilted backwards, powerful legs gripping the deck. The meter-high robot was engrossed in studying the roof overhead. Though he did not have a head to cock in a listening posture like his friend, Artu still somehow managed to convey that impression. A series of short beeps and chirps issued from his speaker. To even a sensitive human ear, they would have been just so much static, but to 3PO they formed words as clear and pure as a direct current. Yes, I suppose they did have to shut the drive down, 3PO admitted. But what are we going to do now? We can't enter atmosphere with our main stabilizer fin destroyed. I can't believe we're simply going to surrender. A small band of armed humans suddenly appeared, rifles held at the ready. Their expressions were as worry-wrinkled as their uniforms, and they carried about them the aura of men prepared to die. 3PO watched silently until they had vanished around a far bend in the passageway, then looked back at R2. The smaller robot hadn't shifted from his position of listening. 3PO's gaze turned upward also, though he knew R2's senses were slightly sharper than his own. What is it, R2? A short burst of beeping came in response. Another moment, and there was no need for highly attuned sensors. For a minute or two more, the corridor remained deathly silent. Then a faint scrape-scrape could be heard, like a cat at the door, from somewhere above. That strange noise was produced by heavy footsteps and the movements of bulky equipment somewhere on the ship's hull. When several muffled explosions sounded, 3PO murmured, They've broken in somewhere above us. There's no escape for the captain this time. Turning, he peered down at Artu. I think we better... The shriek of overstressed metal filled the air before he could finish, and the far end of the passageway was lit by a blinding actinic flash. Somewhere down there, the little cluster of armed crew who had passed by minutes before had encountered the ship's attackers. 3PO turned his face and delicate photoreceptors away, just in time to avoid the fragments of metal that flew down the corridor. 
At the far end, a gaping hole appeared in the roof, and reflective forms like big metal beads began dropping to the corridor floor. Both robots knew that no machine could match the fluidity in which these shapes move and instantly assumed fighting postures. The new arrivals were humans in armor, not mechanicals. One of them looked straight at 3PO. No, not at him, the panic robot thought frantically, but past him. The figure shifted its big rifle around in armored hands. Too late. A beam of intense light struck at the head, sending pieces of armor, bone, and flesh flying in all directions. Half the invading Imperial troops turned and began returning fire up the corridor, aiming past the two robots. Quick, this way! 3PO ordered, intending to retreat from the Imperials. R2 turned with him. They had only taken a couple of steps when they saw the rebel crewmen in position ahead, firing down the corridor. In seconds, the passageway was filled with smoke and crisscrossing beams of energy. Red, green, and blue bolts ricocheted off polished sections of wall and floor and ripped long gashes in metal surfaces. Screams of injured and dying humans. A peculiarly unrobotic sound, 3PO thought, echoed piercingly above the inorganic destruction. One beam struck near the robot's feet at the same time as the second one burst the wall directly behind him, exposing sparking circuitry and rows of conduits. The force of the twin blast tumbled 3PO into the shredded cabinets, where a dozen different currents turned him into a jerking, twisting display. Strange sensations coursed through his metal nerve ends. They caused no pain, only confusion. Every time he moved and tried to free himself, there was another violent crackling as a fresh cluster of componentry broke. The noise and man-made lighting remained constant around him as the battle continued to rage. Smoke began to fill the corridor. R2-D2 bustled about trying to help free his friend. The little robot evidenced a phlegmatic indifference to the ravening energies filling the passageway. He was built so low that most of the beams passed over him anyway. Help! 3PO yelled, suddenly frightened at a new message from the internal sensor. I think something's melting! Free my left leg! The trouble's near the pelvic servometer! Typically, his tone turned abruptly from pleading to berating. This is all your fault, he shouted angrily. I should have known better than to trust the logic of a half-sized thermocapsulary dehousing assister. I don't know why you insisted we leave our assigned stations to come down this stupid access corridor. Not that it matters now. The whole ship must be... R2-D2 cut him off in mid-speech with some angry beepings and hoots of his own, though he continued to cut and pull with precision at the tangled high-voltage cables. Is that so? 3PO sneered in reply. The same to you, you little... An exceptionally violent explosion shook the passage, drowning him out. A lung-searing miasma of carbonized component filled the air, obscuring everything. Two meters tall. Bipedal. Flowing black robes trailing from the figure in a face forever masked by a functional, if bizarre, black metal breath screen. A dark Lord of the Sith was an awesome, threatening shape as it strode through the corridors of the rebel ship. Fear followed the footsteps of all Dark Lords. The cloud of evil which clung tight about this particular one was intense enough to cause hardened Imperial troops to back away, menacing enough to set them muttering nervously amongst themselves. Once resolute rebel crew members ceased resisting, Broken ran in panic at the sight of the black armor, armor which, though black as it was, was not nearly as dark as the thoughts drifting through the mind within. One purpose, one thought, one obsession dominated the mind now. 
It burned in the brain of Darth Vader as he turned down another passageway in the broken fighter. There, smoke was beginning to clear, though the sounds of faraway fighting still resounded through the hull. The battle here had ended and moved on. Only a robot was left to stir freely in the wake of the Dark Lord's passing. C-3PO finally stepped clear of the last restraining cable. Somewhere behind him, human screams could be heard from where the relentless Imperial troops were mopping up the last remnants of rebel resistance. 3PO glanced down and saw only scarred deck. As he looked down, his voice was full of concern. R2-D2, where are you? The smoke seemed to part just a little bit more. 3PO found himself staring up the passageway. R2-D2, it seemed, was there. But he wasn't looking in 3PO's direction. Instead, the little robot appeared frozen in an attitude of attention. Leaning over him was... It was difficult for even 3PO's electronic photoreceptors to penetrate the clinging acidic smoke. A human figure. It was young, slim, and by abstruse human standards of aesthetics, 3PO mused, of a calm beauty. One small hand seemed to be moving over the front of R2's torso. 3PO started towards him as the haze thickened once more, but when he reached the end of the corridor, only R2-D2 stood there, waiting. 3PO peered past him, uncertain. Robots were occasionally subject to electronic hallucinations, but why should he hallucinate a human? He shrugged. Then again, why not? Especially when one considered the confusing circumstances of the past hour and the dose of raw current he had recently absorbed, he shouldn't be surprised at anything his concatenated internal circuits conjured up. Where have you been? 3PO finally asked. Arting, I suppose. He decided not to mention the maybe human. If it had been a hallucination, he wasn't going to give R2 the satisfaction of knowing how badly recent events had unsettled his logic circuits. They'll be coming back this way, he went on, nodding down the corridor and giving the small automaton a chance to reply. Looking for human survivors. What are we going to do now? They won't trust the word of rebel-owned machines and we don't know anything of value. We'll be sent to the spice mines of Kessel or taken apart for spare components for other less deserving robots. That's if they don't consider us potential program traps and blow us apart on sight. If we don't... But R2 had already turned and was ambling quickly back down the passageway. Wait, where are you going? Haven't you been listening to me? Uttering curses in several languages, some purely mechanical. 3PO raced fluidly after his friend. The R2 unit, he thought to himself, could be downright closed-circuited when it wanted to. Outside the Galactic Cruiser's control center, the corridors crowded with sullen prisoners gathered by Imperial troops. Some lay wounded, some dying. Several officers had been separated from the enlisted ranks and stood in a small group by themselves, bestowing belligerent looks and threats on the silent knot of troops holding them at bay. As if on command, everyone, Imperial troops as well as rebels, became silent as a massive caped form came into view from behind a turn in the passage. Two of the heretofore resolute, obstinate rebel officers began to shake. Stopping before one of the men, the towering figure reached out wordlessly. A massive hand closed around the man's neck and lifted him off the deck. The rebel officer's eyes bulged, but he kept his silence. An imperial officer, his armored helmet shoved back to reveal a recent scar where an energy beam had penetrated his shielding, scrambled down out of the fighter's control room, shaking his head briskly. Nothing, sir. Information retrieval system's been wiped clean. 
Darth Vader acknowledged this news with a barely perceptible nod. The impenetrable mask turned to regard the officer he was torturing. Metal-clad fingers contracted. Reaching up, the prisoner desperately tried to pry them loose, but to no avail. Where is the data you intercepted? Vader rumbled dangerously. What have you done with the information tapes? We intercepted no information. The dangling officer gurgled, barely able to breathe. From somewhere deep within, he dredged up a squeal of outrage. This is a counselor vessel. Did you not see our exterior markings? We're on a diplomatic mission. Chaos, take your mission, Vader growled. Where are those tapes? He squeezed harder, the threat of his grip implicit. When he finally replied, the officer's voice was a bare, choked whisper. Only the commander knows. The ship carries the system crest of Alderaan, Vader growled, the gargoyle-like breath mask leaning close. Is any of the royal family on board? Who are you carrying? Thick fingers tightened further and the officer's struggles became more and more frantic. His last words were muffled and choked past intelligibility. Vader was not pleased. Even though the figure went limp with an awful, unquestionable finality, that hand continued to tighten, producing a chilling snapping and popping of bone, like a dog patting on plastic. Then with a disgusted wheeze, Vader finally threw the doll form of the dead man against a far wall. Several Imperial troops ducked out of the way just in time to avoid the grisly missile. The massive form whirled unexpectedly, and Imperial officer shrank under that baleful, sculptured stare. Start tearing this ship apart piece by piece, component by component, until you find those tapes. As for the passengers, if any, I want them alive. He paused a moment, then added, Quickly! Officers and men nearly fell over themselves in their haste to leave, not necessarily to carry out Vader's orders, but simply to retreat from that malevolent presence. R2-D2 finally came to a halt in an empty corridor, devoid of smoke and the signs of battle. A worried, confused 3PO pulled up behind him. You've led us through half the ship and did what? He broke off, staring in disbelief as the squat robot reached up with one clawed limb and snapped the seal on a lifeboat hatch. Immediately, a red warning light came on and a low hooting sounded in the corridor. 3PO looked wildly in all directions, but the passageway remained empty. When he looked back, R2 was already working his way into the cramped boat pod. It was just large enough to hold several humans, and its design was not laid out to accommodate mechanicals. R2 had some trouble negotiating the awkward little compartment. Hey, a startled 3PO called, admonishing. You're not permitted in there. It's restricted to humans only. We just might be able to convince Imperials that we're not rebel programmed and are too valuable to break up. But if someone sees you in there, we haven't got a chance. Come on out. Somehow R2 had succeeded in wedging his body into position in the front of the miniature control board. He cocked his body slightly and threw a stream of loud beeps and whistles at his reluctant companion. 3PO listened. He couldn't frown, but he managed to give a good impression of doing so. Mission? What mission? What are you talking about? You sound like you haven't got an integrated logic terminal left in your brain. No, no more adventures. 
I'll take my chances with the Imperials, and I'm not getting in there. An angry electronic twang came from the R2 unit. Don't call me a mindless philosopher, 3PO snapped back. You overweights, unstreamlined glob of grease. 3PO was concocting an additional rejoinder when an explosion blew out the back wall of the corridor. Dust and metal debris whooshed through the narrow sub-passageway, followed instantly by a series of secondary explosions. Flames began jumping hungrily from the exposed interior wall, reflecting off 3PO's isolated patches of polished skin. Muttering the electronic equivalent of consigning his soul to the unknown, the lanky robot jumped into the life pod. I'm gonna regret this! He muttered more audibly as R2 activated the safety door behind him. The smaller robot flipped a series of switches, snapped back a cover, and pressed three buttons in a certain sequence. With the thunder of explosive latches, the life pod ejected from the crippled fighter. When word came over the communicators that the last pocket of resistance on the rebel ship had been cleaned out, the captain of the Imperial cruiser relaxed considerably. He was listening with pleasure to the proceedings on the captured vessel when one of his chief gunnery officers called to him. Moving to the man's position, the captain stared into the circular view screen and saw a tiny drop dropping away towards the fiery world below. There goes another pod, sir. Instructions? The officer's hand hovered over a computerized energy battery. Casually, confident in the firepower and total control under his command, the captain studied the nearby readouts monitoring the pod. All of them read blank. Hold your fire, Lieutenant Hinja. Instruments show no life forms aboard. The pod release mechanism must have short-circuited or received a false instruction. Don't waste your power. He turned away to listen with satisfaction to the reports of captured men and material coming from the rebel ship. Glare from exploding panels and erupting circuitry reflected crazily off the armor of the lead stormtrooper as he surveyed the passageway ahead. He was about to turn and call for those behind to follow him forward when he noticed something moving off to one side. It appeared to be crouching back in a small, dark alcove. Holding his pistol ready, he moved cautiously forward and peered into the recess. A small, shivering figure clad in flowing white hugged the back of the recess and stared up at the man. Now he could see that he faced a young woman, and her physical description fit the one of the individual the Dark Lord was most interested in. The trooper grinned behind his helmet. A lucky encounter for him. He would be commended. Within the armor, his head turned slightly, directing his voice to the tiny condenser microphone. Here she is, he called to those behind him. Set for stun force. He never finished a sentence, just as he would never receive the hoped-for commendation. Once his attention turned from the girl to his communicator, her shivering vanished with startling speed. The energy pistol she had held out of sight behind her came up and around as she burst from her hiding place. The trooper who had been unlucky enough to find her fell first, his head a mass of melted bone and metal. The same fate met the second armored form coming up fast behind him. Then a bright green energy pole touched the woman's side and she slumped instantly to the deck, the pistol still locked in her small palm. Metal encased shapes clustered around her. One whose arm bore the insignia of a lower officer knelt and turned her over. He studied the paralyzed form with a practiced eye. She'll be all right, he finally declared, looking up to his subordinates. Report to Lord Vader. Drepio stared, mesmerized, out the small viewport set in the front of the tiny escape pod as a hot yellow eye of tattooing began to swallow them up.
Somewhere behind them, he knew, the crippled fighter and the Imperial cruiser were receding to imperceptibility. That was fine with him. If they landed near a civilized city, he would seek elegant employment in a halcyon atmosphere, something more befitting his status and trading. These past few months had gifted him with entirely too much excitement and unpredictability for a mere machine. R2's seemingly random manipulation of the pod controllers promised anything but a smooth landing, however. 3PO regarded his squat companion with concern. Are you sure you know how to pilot this thing? R2 replied with a non-committal whistle that did nothing to alter the taller robot's jangled state of mind. That was the end of Chapter 1. We'll be back in a minute with Chapter 2 of Star Wars. Theater of the Mind! Deep in the Geek is a podcast for the geek and everyone. Please join your host, Peregrine and D-Man, each week as they discuss all the things that geek guys love to talk about from the sci-fi, fantasy, and comic genres. For movies, TVs, comics, novels, and games, seek out Definitive Geek. Available on iTunes or at DefinitiveGeek.Podomatic.com. As the wheel turns, the podcast from Peregrine and D-Man, the Definitive Geeks, discussing Robert Jordan's Wheel Time series. Please join us as we share insights and revelations regarding this epic fantasy series. We would welcome yours as well. Please email DefinitiveGeek at gmail.com. Definitive Geek is available on iTunes or at DefinitiveGeek.Podomatic.com. Hey kids, comics! Hey Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. Well, you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Um, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. That's snappy. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. That's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. We talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics, and then we talk about them, because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then we sing badly. Yes, well, badly is purely subjective. But how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Aches comics every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com. Chapter two. It was an old settler saying that you could burn your eyes out faster by staring straight and hard at the sun-scorched flatlands of tattooing than by looking directly at its two huge suns by themselves. So powerful was the penetrating glare reflected from those endless wastes. Despite the glare, life could and did exist in the flatlands formed by the long-evaporated seabeds. One thing made it possible, the reintroduction of water. For human purposes, however, the water of Tatooine was only marginally accessible. The atmosphere yielded its moisture with reluctance. It had to be coaxed down out of the hard blue sky, coaxed, forced, yanked down to the parched surface. Two figures whose concern was obtaining that moisture were standing on a slight rise of one of those inhospitable flats. One of the pair was stiff and metallic, 
A sand-pitted evaporator sunk securely through sand and into deeper rock. The figure next to it was a good deal more animated, though no less sun-weathered. Luke Skywalker was twice the age of the ten-year-old evaporator, but much less secure. At the moment, he was swearing softly at a recalcitrant valve adjuster on the temperamental device. From time to time, he resorted to using some unsubtle pounding in place of using the appropriate tool. Neither method worked very well. Luke was sure that the lubricants used on the evaporators went out of their way to attract sand, beckoning seductively to the small abrasive particles with an oily gleam. He wiped sweat from his forehead and leaned back for a moment. The most prepossessing thing about the young man was his name. A light breeze tugged at his shaggy hair and baggy work tunic as he regarded the device. No point in staying angry at it, he counseled himself. It's only an unintelligent machine. As Luke considered his predicament, a third figure appeared, scooting out from behind the evaporator to fumble awkwardly at the damaged section. Only three of the Treadwell model robot's six arms were functioning, and these had seen more wear than the boots on Luke's feet. The machine moved with an unsteady stop-and-start motion. Luke gazed at it sadly, then inclined his head to study the sky. Still no sign of a cloud, and he knew there never would be unless he got that evaporator working. He was about to try once again when a small, intense gleam of light caught his eye. Quickly, he slipped the carefully cleaned set of macro binoculars from his utility belt and focused the lens skyward. For long moments, he stared, wishing all the while that he had a real telescope instead of the binox. As he stared, evaporators, the heat, and the day's remaining chores were forgotten. Clipping the binoculars back into his belt, Luke turned and dashed to the land speeder, halfway to the vehicle he thought to call behind him. Hurry up, he shouted impatiently. What are you waiting for? Get it in gear. The treadwell started towards him, hesitated, and then commenced spinning around in a tight circle, smoke belching from every joint. Luke shouted further instructions, then finally gave up in disgust when he realized that it would take more than words to motivate the treadwell again. For a moment, Luke hesitated at leaving the machine behind. So he jumped into the land speeder causing the recently repaired repulsion floater to list alarmingly to one side until he was able to equalize weight distribution by sliding behind the controls. Maintaining its altitude slightly above the sandy ground, the light-duty transport vehicle steadied itself like a boat in a heavy sea. Luke gunned the engine which whined in protest, and sand erupted behind the floater as he aimed the craft towards the distant town of Anchorhead. Behind him, a pitiful beacon of black smoke from the burning robot continued to rise into the clear desert air. It wouldn't be there when Luke returned. There were scavengers of metal as well as flesh in the wide wastes of tattooing. Metal and stone structures, bleached white by the glaze of twin tattoo one and two, huddled together tightly for company as much as for protection. They formed the nexus of the widespread farming community of Anchorhead. Presently, the dusty, unpaved streets were quiet, deserted. Sandflies buzzed lazily in the cracked eaves of poor stone buildings. A dog barked in the distance, the sole sign of habitation until a lone old woman appeared and started across the street. Her metallic sunshawl was pulled tight around her. Something made her look up, tired eyes squinting into the distance. The sound suddenly leaped in volume as a shining rectangular shape came roaring around a corner. Her eyes popped as the vehicle bore down on her, showing no sign of altering its path. She had to scramble to get out of the way. Panting and waving an angry fist after the land speeder, she raised her voice over the sound of its passage. Won't you kids ever learn to slow down? 
Luke might have seen her, but he certainly didn't hear her. In both cases, his attention was focused elsewhere as he pulled up behind a low, long concrete station. Various coils and rods jutted from its top and sides. Tatooine's relentless sand waves broke in frozen yellow spume against the station's wall. No one had bothered to clear them away. There was no point. They would only return again the following day. Luke slammed the front door aside and shouted, Hey! A rugged young man in mechanics dress sat sprawled in a chair behind the station's unkept control desk. Sunscreen oil had kept his skin from burning. The skin of the girl on his lap had been equally protected, and there was a great deal more of the protected area in view. Somehow even dried sweat looked good on her. Hey everybody! Luke yelled again, having elicited something less than an overwhelming response with his first cry. He ran towards the instrument room at the rear of the station while the mechanic, half asleep, ran a hand across his face and mumbled, Did I hear young noise blast through here? The girl on his lap stretched sensuously, her well-worn clothing tugging in various intriguing directions. Her voice was casually throaty. Oh, she yawned, that was just Wormy on one of his rampages. Deacon Windy looked up from the computer-assisted pool game as Luke burst into the room. They were dressed much like Luke, although their clothing was a better fit and somewhat less exercised. All three youths contrasted strikingly with the burly, handsome player at the far side of the table. From neatly clipped hair to his precision-cut uniform, he stood out in the room like an oriental poppy in a sea of oats. Behind the three humans, a soft hum came from where a repair robot was working patiently on a broken piece of station equipment. Shape it up, you guys, Luke yelled excitedly. Then he noticed the older man in the uniform. The subject of his suddenly startled gaze recognized him simultaneously. The man's face twisted into a half grin. Hello, Luke. Then they were embracing each other warmly. Luke finally stood away, openly admiring the other's uniform. I didn't know you were back. When did you get in? The confidence in the other's voice bordered the realm of smugness without quite entering it. Just a little while ago. I wanted to surprise you, hotshot. He indicated the room. I thought you'd be here with these other two nightcrawlers. Deke and Wendy both smiled. I certainly didn't expect you to be out working. <laughs> he laughed easily, a laugh few people found resistible. The academy didn't change you much, Luke commented. But you're back so soon. His expression grew concerned. Hey, what happened? Didn't you get your commission? There was something evasive about Biggs as he replied, looking slightly away. Of course I got it. Signed to serve aboard the freighter Rand Elliptic just last week. First mate Biggs Darklighter at your service. He performed a twisting salute, half serious and half humorous. Then grinned that overbearing yet ingratiating grin again. I just came back to say goodbye to all you unfortunate landlocked simpletons. They all laughed until Luke suddenly remembered what had brought him here in such a hurry. I almost forgot, he told them, his initial excitement returning. There's a battle going on right here in our system. Come and look. Deke looked disappointed. Not another one of your epic battles, Luke. Haven't you dreamed up enough of them? Forget it. Forget it? How? I'm serious. It's a battle, all right. With words and shoved, he managed to cajole the occupants of the station out into the strong sunlight. Cammy in particular looked disgusted. This had better be worth it, Luke, she warned him, shading her eyes against the glare. Luke already had his macro binoculars out and was searching the heavens. It took only a moment for him to fix on a particular spot. I told you, he insisted. There they are. 
Biggs moved alongside him and reached for the binoculars as the others strained unaided eyes. A slight readjustment provided just enough magnification for Biggs to make out two silvery specks against the dark blue. That's no battle, Hotshot, he decided, lowering the binox and regarding his friend gently. They're just sitting there. Two ships alright, probably a barge loading a freighter since tattooing hasn't gotten any orbital station. There was a lot of firing earlier, Luke added. His initial enthusiasm was beginning to falter under the withering assurance of his older friend. Cammy grabbed the binoculars away from Biggs, banging them slightly against the support pillar in the process. Luke took them away from her quickly, inspecting the casing for damage. Take it easy with those! Don't worry so much, Wormy, she sneered. Luke took a step towards her, then halted as a huskier mechanic easily interposed himself between them and favored Luke with a warning smile. Luke considered, then shrugged the incident away. I keep telling you, Luke, the mechanic said with the air of a man tired of repeating the same story to no avail. The rebellion is a long way from here. I doubt if the Empire would fight to keep this system. Believe me, tattooing is a big hunk of nothing. His audience began to fade back into the station before Luke could mutter a reply. Fixer had his arm around Cammy, and the two of them were chuckling over Luke's ineptitude. Even Deke and Wendy were murmuring among themselves about him, Luke was certain. He followed them, but not without a last glance back up into the distant speck. One thing he was sure of were the flashes of light he had seen between the two ships. They hadn't been caused by the suns of tattooing reflecting off metal. The binding that locked the girl's hand behind her back was primitive and effective. The constant attention the squad of heavily armed troopers favored her with might have been out of place for one small female, except for the fact that their lives depended on her being delivered safely. When she deliberately slowed her pace, however, it became apparent that her captors did not mind mistreating her a little. One of the armored figures shoved her brutally in the small of the back and she nearly fell. Turning, she gave the offending soldier a vicious look. Hmm. But she could not tell if it had any effect, since the man's face was completely hidden by his armored helmet. The hallway they eventually emerged into was still smoking around the edges of the smoldering cavity blasted through the hull of the freighter. A portable accessway had been sealed to it and a circlet of lights showed through the far end of the tunnel, bridging space between the rebel craft and the cruiser. A shadow moved over her as she turned from inspecting the accessway, startling her despite her usually unshakable self-control. Above her towered the threatening bulk of Darth Vader, red eyes glaring behind the hideous breath mask. A muscle twitched in one smooth cheek, but other than that the girl didn't react. Nor was it the slightest shake in her voice. Darth Vader, I should have known. Only you would be so bold and so stupid. Well, the Imperial Senate will not sit still for this. When they hear that you've attacked a diplomatic mission... Senator Leo Organa, Vader rumbled softly, though strongly enough to override her protests. His pleasure at finding her was evident in the way he savored every syllable. Don't play games with me, your highness. He continued ominously. You are on an mercy mission this time. You passed directly through a restricted system, ignoring numerous warnings and completely disregarding orders to turn around until it no longer mattered. The huge metal skull dipped close. I know that several transmissions were beamed to this vessel by spies within that system. When we traced those transmissions back to the individuals with whom they originated, they had the poor grace to kill themselves before they could be questioned. 
I want to know what happened to the data they sent you. Neither Vader's words nor his inimical presence appeared to have any effect on the girl. I don't know what you're blathering about, she snapped, looking away from him. I'm a member of the Senate on a diplomatic mission to uh To your part of the Rebel Alliance, Vader declared, cutting her off accusingly. You're also a traitor. His gaze went to a nearby officer. Take her away. She succeeded in reaching him with her spit, which hissed against his still hot battle armor. He wiped the offensive matter away silently, watching her with interest mm. as she was marched through the access way into the cruiser. A tall, slim soldier wearing the sign of an Imperial commander attracted Vader's attention as he came up next to him. Holding her is dangerous, he ventured, likewise looking after her as she was escorted towards the cruiser. If word of this does get out, there will be much unrest in the Senate. It will generate sympathy for the rebels. The commander looked up at the unreadable metal face, and then added in an offhanded manner. She should be destroyed immediately. No, my first duty is to locate that hidden fortress of theirs. Vader replied easily. All the rebel spies have been eliminated by our hand or by their own. Therefore, she is now my only key to discovering its location. I intend to make full use of her. If necessary, I will lose her up, but I will learn the location of the rebel base. The commander pursed his lips, shook his head slightly, perhaps a bit sympathetically as he considered the woman She'll die before she gives you any information. Vader's reply was chilling in its indifference. Leave that to me. He considered a moment, then went on. Send out a wide distress signal. Indicate that the Senator's ship encountered an unexpected meteorite cluster it could not avoid. Readings indicate the shift shields were overridden when the ship was hauled to the point of vacating 95% of its atmosphere. Inform her father in the Senate that all aboard were killed. A cluster of tired-looking troopers marched purposely up to their commander and the Dark Lord. Vader eyed them expectantly. The data tapes in question are not aboard the ship. There is no valuable information in the ship's snorex banks and no evidence of bank erasure, the officer in charge recited mechanically. Nor were any transmissions directed outward from the ship from the time we made contact. A malfunctioning lifeboat pod was ejected during the fighting, but it was confirmed at the time that no life forms were on board. Vader appeared thoughtful. It could have been a malfunctioning pod, he mused. That might also have contained the tapes. Tapes are not life forms. In all probability, any native finding them would be ignorant of their importance and would likely clear them for their own use. Still, send down a detachment to retrieve them or to make certain they are not in the pod, he finally ordered the commander and the attentive officer. Be as subtle as possible. There is no need to attract attention even on this miserable outpost world. As the officers and troops departed, Vader turned his gaze back to the commander. Vaporize this fighter. We don't want to leave anything. As for the pod, I cannot take a chance it was a simple malfunction. The data it might contain could prove too damaging. See this personally, commander. If those data tapes exist, they must be retrieved or destroyed at all costs. Then he added with satisfaction, With that accomplished, and the senator in our hands, we will see the end of this absurd rebellion. It shall be as you direct, Lord Vader, the commander acknowledged. Both men entered the access way to the cruiser. What a forsaken place this is! 3PO turned cautiously to look back at where the pod lay half buried in the sand. His internal gyros were still unsteady from the rough landing. 
Landing, mere application of the term unduly flattered his dull associate. On the other hand, he supposed he ought to be grateful that they had come down in one piece. Although, he mused as he studied the barren landscape, he still wasn't sure they were better off here than they would have been had they remained on the captured cruiser. High sandstone mesas dominated the skyline to one side. Every other direction showed only endless series of marching dunes, like long yellow teeth stretching for kilometer on kilometer into the distance. Sand ocean blended into sky glare until it was impossible to distinguish where one ended and the other began. A faint cloud of minute dust particles rose in their wake as the two robots marched away from the pod. That vehicle, its intended function fully discharged, was now quite useless. Neither robot had been designed for pedal locomotion on this kind of terrain, so they had to fight their way across the unstable surface. We seem to have been made to suffer, 3PO moaned in self-pity. It's a rotten experience. Something squeaked in his right leg and he winced. I've got to rest before I fall apart. My internals still haven't recovered from that headlong crash you call a landing. He paused, but R2 did not. The little automaton had performed a sharp turn and was now ambling slowly but steadily in the direction of the nearest outjet of Mesa. Hey! 3PO yelled. R2 ignored the call and continued striding. Where do you think you're going? Now R2 paused, emitting a stream of electronic explanation as 3PO exhaustively walked over to join him. Well, I'm not going that way, 3PO declared when R2 had concluded his explanation. It's too rocky! He gestured in the direction they had been walking, at an angle away from the cliffs. This way's much easier! A metal hand waved disparagingly at the high mesas. What makes you think there are any settlements that way, anyhow? A long whistle issued from the depths of R2. Don't get technical with me, 3PO warned. I've just had about enough of your decisions. R2 beeped once. All right, go your way, 3PO announced grandly. You'll be sandlogged within a day, you nearsighted scrap pile. He gave the R2 unit a contemptuous shove, sending the smaller robot tumbling down a slight dune. As it struggled at the bottom to regain its feet, 3PO started off towards the blurred, glaring horizon, glancing back over his shoulder. Don't let me catch you following me, begging for help, he warned. Because you won't get it! Below the crest of the dune, the R2 unit righted itself. It paused briefly to clean its single electronic eye with an auxiliary arm. Then it produced an electronic squeal which was almost, though not quite, a human expression of rage. Humming quietly to itself then, it turned and trudged off towards the sandstone ridges as if nothing had happened. Several hours later, a straining 3PO, his internal thermostat overloaded and edging dangerously towards overheat shutdown, struggled up the top of what he hoped was the last towering dune. Nearby, pillars and buttresses of bleached calcium, the bones of some enormous beast, formed an unpromising landmark. Reaching the crest of the dune, 3PO peered anxiously ahead. Instead of the hoped-for greenery of human civilization, he saw only several dozen more dunes, identical in form and promise to the one he now stood upon. The farthest rose even higher than the one he presently surmounted. 3PO turned and looked back at the now far-off rocky plateau which was beginning to grow indistinct with distance and with heat distortion. "'You malfunctioning little twerp!' he muttered, unable even now to admit to himself that perhaps, just possibly, the R2 unit might have been right. "'This is all your fault. You tricked me into going this way, but you'll do no better.' Nor would he if he didn't continue on, so he took a step forward and heard something grind dully within a leg joint. Sitting down in an electronic funk, he began picking sand from his encrusted joints. He could continue on his present course, he told himself, 
or he could confess to an error in judgment and try to catch up again with R2-D2. Neither project held much appeal for him. But there was a third choice. He could sit here shining in the sunlight until his joints locked, his internals overheated, and the ultraviolet burned out his photoreceptors. He would become another monument to the destructive power of the binary, like the colossal organism whose picked corpse he had just encountered. Already his receptors were beginning to go, he reflected. It seemed he saw something moving in the distance. Heat distortion, probably. No? No, it was definitely light on metal, and it was moving towards him. His hopes soared. Ignoring the warnings from his damaged leg, he rose and began waving frantically. It was, he saw now, definitely a vehicle, though of a type unfamiliar to him. But a vehicle it was, and that implied intelligence and technology. He neglected in his excitement to consider the possibility that it might not be of human origin. So I cut off my power, shut down the afterburners, and dropped in low on Deke's tail, Luke finished, waving his arms wildly. He and Biggs were walking in the shade outside the power station. Sounds of metal being worked came from somewhere within, where Fixer had finally joined his robot assistant in performing repairs. I was so close to him, Luke continued excitedly, I thought I was going to fry my instrumentation. As it was, I busted up the skyhopper pretty bad. That recollection inspired a frown. Uncle Owen was pretty upset. He grounded me for the rest of the season. Luke's depression was brief. Memory of his feet overrode his immorality. You should have been there, Biggs. You ought to take it a little easier, his friend cautioned. You might be the hottest bush pilot this side of Moss Isley, Luke, but those little skyhoppers can be dangerous. They move awfully fast for tropospheric craft, faster than they need to. Keep playing engine jockey with one, and someday, whammo! He slammed one fist violently into his open palm. You're going to be nothing more than a dark spot on the damp side of a canyon wall. Look who's talking, Luke retorted. Now that you've been on a few big automatic starships, you're beginning to sound like my uncle. You've gotten soft in the cities. He swung spiritedly at Biggs, who blocked the movement easily, making a half-hearted gesture of counterattack. Biggs' easygoing smugness dissolved into something warmer. I've missed you, kid. Luke looked away, embarrassed. Things haven't been exactly the same since you left either, Biggs. It's been so... Luke hunted for the right word and finally finished helplessly. So quiet. His gaze traveled across the sandy, deserted streets of Anchorhead. It's always been quiet, really. Biggs grew silent, thinking. He glanced around. They were alone out here. Everyone else was back inside the comparative coolness of the power station. As he leaned close, Luke sensed an unaccustomed solemnness in his friend's tone. Luke? I didn't come back just to say goodbye, or to crow over everything because I got through the academy. Again, he seemed to hesitate, unsure of himself. Then he blurted out rapidly, not giving himself a chance to back down. But I want somebody to know I can't tell my parents. Gaping at Biggs, Luke could only gulp. Know what? What are you talking about? I'm talking about the talking that's been going on at the academy. And other places, Luke. Strong talking. I've made some new friends. Out-system friends. We agreed about the way certain things are developing and... His voice dropped conspiratorially. When we reach one of the peripheral systems, we're going to jump ship and join the Alliance. Luke stared back at his friend, trying to picture Biggs. Fun-loving, happy-go-lucky, live-for-today Biggs, as a patriot afire with rebellious fervor. You're going to join the rebellion, he started. You've got to be kidding, how? Dip it down, will you? The bigger man cautioned, glancing furtively back towards the power station. You've got a mouth like a crater. 
I'm sorry, Luke whispered rapidly. I'm quiet. Listen how quiet I am. You can barely hear me. Biggs cut him off and continued. A friend of mine was from the academy and has a friend on Bestine who might be able to get me a contact with an armed rebel unit. A friend of a... You're crazy, Luke announced with conviction. Certain his friend had gone mad. You could wander around forever trying to find a real rebel outpost. Most of them are only myths. This twice-removed rebel friend could be an Imperial agent. You'd end up on Kessel. Or worse. If rebel outposts were so easy to find, the Empire would have wiped them out years ago. I know it's a long shot, Biggs admitted reluctantly. If I don't contact them, then... A peculiar light came into Biggs' eyes. A conglomeration of newfound maturity and... Something else. I'll do what I can on my own. He stared intensely at his friend. Luke... I'm not going to wait for the Empire to conscript me into its service. In spite of what you hear over the official information channels, rebellion is growing, spreading, and I want to be on the right side, the side I believe in. His voice altered unpleasantly and Luke wondered what he saw in his mind's eye. You should have heard some of the stories I've heard, Luke. Learned some of the outrages I've learned about. The Empire may have been great and beautiful once, but the people in charge now... He shook his head sharply. It's rotten, Luke. Rotten. And I can't do a damn thing, Luke muttered morosely. I'm stuck here. He kicked futilely at the ever-present sand of Acrehead. I thought you were going to enter the academy soon, Biggs observed. If that's so, then you'll have your chance to get off this sand pile. Luke snorted derisively. <laughs> Not likely. I had to withdraw my application. He looked away, unable to meet his friend's disbelieving stare. I had to. There's been a lot of unrest amongst the sand people since you left, Biggs. They've even raided the outskirts of Anchorhead. Biggs shook his head, disregarding the excuse. Your uncle could hold off a whole colony of raiders with one blaster. From the house, sure, Luke agreed. But Uncle Owen's finally got enough evaporators installed and running to make his farm pay off big. But he can't guard all that land by himself, and he says he needs me for one more season. I can't run out on him now. Biggs sighed sadly. I feel for you, Luke. Someday you're going to have to learn to separate what seems to be important from what really is important. He gestured around them. What good is all your uncle's work if he's taken over by the Empire? I've heard that they're starting to imperialize commerce and all the outlying systems. It won't take long before your uncle and everyone else on Tatooine are just tenants slaving for the greater glory of the Empire. That couldn't happen here, Luke objected with a confidence he didn't quite feel. You've said it yourself. The Empire won't bother with this rock. Things change, Luke. Only the threat of rebellion keeps many in power from doing certain unmentionable things. If that threat's completely removed, well, there are two things men have never been able to satisfy. Their curiosity and their greed. There isn't much the high Imperial bureaucrats are curious about. Both men stood silent. A sand world transversed the street in silent majesty collapsing against a wall to send newborn baby zephyrs in all directions. I wish I was going with you, Luke finally murmured. He glanced up. Will you be around long? Nope. As a matter of fact, I'm leaving in the morning to rendezvous with the ecliptic. Then I guess I won't be seeing you again. Maybe someday, Biggs declared. He brightened, grinning with that disarming grin. I'll keep a lookout for you, hotshot. Try not to run into any canyon walls in the meantime. I'll be at the Academy the season after, Luke insisted, more to encourage himself than Biggs. After that, who knows where I'll end up? He sounded determined. I won't be drafted into the Starfleet, that's for sure. Take care of yourself. You'll always be the 
best friend I've got. There was no need for a handshake. The two had long since passed beyond that. So long then, Luke, Biggs said simply. He turned and re-entered the power station. Luke watched him disappear through the door, his own thoughts as chaotic and frantic as one of Tatooine's spontaneous dust storms. There are any number of extraordinary features unique to Tatooine's surface. Outstanding among them were the mysterious mists which rose regularly from the ground at the points where desert sands washed up against unyielding cliffs and mesas. Fog in a steaming desert seemed as out of place as cactus on a glacier, but it existed nonetheless. Meteorologists and geologists argued its origin amongst themselves, muttering hard-to-believe theories about water suspended in sandstone veins beneath the sand and incomprehensible chemical reactions which made water rise when the ground cooled, then fall underground again with the double sunrise. It was all very backward and very real. Neither the mist nor the alien moans of nocturnal desert dwellers troubled R2-D2, however, as he made his careful way up the rocky arroyo, hunting for the easiest pathway to the mesa top. His squarish, broad footpads made clicking sounds loud in the evening light as the sand underfoot gave way gradually to gravel. For a moment, he paused. He seemed to detect a noise, like metal on rock ahead of him, instead of rock on rock. The sound wasn't repeated, though, and he quickly resumed his ambling ascent. Up the arroyo, too far up to be seen from below, a pebble trickled loose from the stone wall. The tiny figure which had accidentally dislodged the pebble retreated mouse-like into the shadow. Two glowing points of light showed under overlapping folds of brown cape a meter from the narrowing canyon wall. Only the reaction of the unsuspecting robot indicated a presence of the whining beam as it struck him. For a moment, R2-D2 fluoresced eerily in the dimming light. There was a single short electronic squeak. Then the tripodal support unbalanced, and the tiny automaton toppled over onto its back, the lights on its front blinking on and off erratically from the effects of the paralyzing beam. Three travesties of men scurried out from behind concealing boulders. Their motions were more indicative of rodent than humankind, and they stood a little taller than the R2 unit. When they saw that the single burst of enervating energy had immobilized the robot, they holstered their peculiar weapons. Nevertheless, they approached the listless machine cautiously, with the trepidation of hereditary cowards. Their cloaks were thickly coated with dust and sand. Unhealthy red-yellow pupils glowed cat-like from the depths of their hoods as they studied their captive. The Jawas conversed in low guttural croaks and scrambled analogs of human speech. If, as anthropologists hypothesized, they had ever been human, they had long since degenerated past anything resembling the human race. Several more Jawas appeared. Together they succeeded in alternately hoisting and dragging the robot back down the arroyo. At the bottom of the canyon, like some monstrous prehistoric beast, was a sand crawler as enormous as its owners and operators were tiny. Several dozen meters high, the vehicle towered above the ground on multiple treads that were taller than a tall man. Its metal epidermis was battered and pitted from withstanding untold sandstorms. On reaching the crawler, the Jawas had resumed jabbering amongst themselves. R2-D2 could hear them, but failed to comprehend anything. He need not have been embarrassed at his failure. If they so wished, only Jawas could understand other Jawas, for they employed a randomly variable language that drove linguists mad. One of them removed a small disc from a belt paunch and sealed it to the R2 unit's flank. A large tube protruded from one side of the gargantuan vehicle. They rolled him over to it and then moved clear. There was a brief moan, the whoosh of powerful vacuum, 
and the small robot was sucked into the bowels of the sand crawler as neatly as a pea up a straw. This part of the job completed, the Jawas engaged in another bout of jabbering, following which they scurried into the crawler via tubes and ladders, for all the world like the, a nest of mice returning to their holes. None too gently, the suction tube deposited R2 in a small cubicle. In addition to varied piles of broken instrumentation and out, outright scrap, a dozen or so robots of differing shape and sizes populated the prison. A few were locked in an electronic conversation. Other muddled aimlessly about, but when R2 tumbled into the chamber, one voice bur burst out in surprise. R2-D2, it's you, it's you, called an excited 3PO from the near darkness. He made his way over to the still immobilized repair unit and embraced it almost unmechanically. Spotting the small disc sealed R2 side, 3PO turned his gaze thoughtfully down at his own chest where a similar device had likewise been attached. Massive gears poorly lubricated started to move with a groaning and grinding the monster sand crawler turn and lumber with restless patience in the desert at night. Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Libson is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com, where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. Dumbass. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook, too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. -T -T -E you can friend me on Facebook, too, if you can find me. Now available... Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up.
We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U.